I'm not trying to be like pushy. I think people also think I'm going to try to be like pushy about like doing something. And really it's like, no, no, no. I just want you to understand what's happening and how we can help your mom. And I think knowledge really helps decrease fear. At the end of the day, you don't want your mom to be suffering and neither do we. And if that's what you want, you are in the right place. And I'm glad I'm here because here's how we can help with that. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. As you've probably guessed, this is not Anthony Orsini. You may recognize my voice from other episodes. My name is Liz Perrette Christ, and I'm the managing director of the Orsini Way. And I've been behind the scenes on every podcast episode since we started. Don't worry, Dr. Orsini will join me on the show, but I really wanted to introduce today's guest. Today, we're honored to welcome Julie McFadden, or otherwise known as Hospice Nurse Julie, as she's known on social media. She has almost a million viewers between TikTok and Instagram, and her warm and insightful ability to normalize and explain the death and dying process has made her a cultural icon. Julie has been a nurse for 15 years, 10 in the ICU, and five taking care of hospice patients. Julie's gift to the world has been sharing her experiences working in hospice care and discussing topics like death in order to help others understand the process and alleviate the anxieties they may have about it. She is funny, honest, and a natural storyteller. Her incredible following has helped open up the conversations about death and dying and change the way people view hospice care. Julie has been featured all over the media in publications like the New York Post, Newsweek, USA Today, and very recently interviewed on the Endwell Project. Julie, we're so excited to have you join us. <laughs> wow, Liz, I'm blushing. You're so sweet. <laughs> a cultural icon, my God. <laughs> That's why I keep her around. She's good for you guys. Right? right? Yeah, she's stroking my ego this morning. Oh my gosh. Thanks for having me. Obviously, conversations around death and the dying process fall into the difficult conversations category. We've had other amazing guests like BJ Miller on the show to talk about how we can demystify death, allowing people to actively participate in the ways they leave this world. We often ask our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves so our audience can get to know you better. Yeah, so I mean, I'm Julie, (laughs) otherwise known as Hospice Nurse Julie, which is so funny to me to like refer to myself as that. I grew up in Pennsylvania in the country, definitely a country girl at heart. I live in Los Angeles now, but I also love Los Angeles. Daily sunshine is key for me. How I got into nursing, I didn't grow up at all thinking about healthcare or nursing. I don't know what I was thinking about, but I think I just had other things on my mind. But I always loved learning about people 
and how to talk with people and connecting with people. So my first degree is in psychology. I thought I was going to go down that scope and maybe become a therapist or something. And after I graduated, I was working in a hospital on a mental health unit and a woman had a seizure right in front of me and fell and hit her head and was bleeding profusely right in front of me. And I freaked out. I did not help. I ran away and ran and got the nurses. I knew enough to do that anyway. I was shaking. They said I looked like a ghost. I was just, I couldn't even tell them what happened. I was just going like, ah, 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 and they knew something was wrong. <laughs> so they, <laughs> left, they left me, they sat me down and they went to her. And thankfully she was fine. She ended up, oh, not fine. I mean, she ended up going on a medical floor and I visited her the next day. I can remember her head was shaved. There were staples in her head. And I just remember that was profound to me that these nurses saw me and then ran to the problem that I was running away from. And instead of being like, I never want to do that again, I was like, how do I become that person that was running to this person bleeding and knows how to help and isn't freaking out? So that's what started me on my nursing journey. And I already had a degree in psychology and the school I went to for my psychology degree had a accelerated nursing program where you could get your BSN, your bachelor's degree in nursing in three semesters. So it's a lot of work and I had to do a bunch of prereqs and things like that. But I sort of fast tracked my way into getting a nursing degree and I became obsessed. Like I loved nursing school, even though it was really hard. I loved it. I was like, holy crap. I didn't know I loved biology. I didn't know I loved chemistry. I didn't know I loved physiology. Like I loved it. I literally Googled after nursing school, number one hospital in the country. And because I was like, oh, that's where I'm going to work. Talk about ego. I was like, and I'm going to be an ICU nurse there. And that's what I'm going to do. Then I'm going to go back to school. I wanted to work in anesthesia eventually. Or so I thought. Yeah. So I just did that. And then I applied for ICU nursing job there and I got it. So I moved to Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, to work at Johns Hopkins. That was the number one. I don't know if they're still number one, but they were. I don't know. And it was amazing. I mean, I was very overwhelmed by my first nursing job. I remember that like for six months, I dreamt of nursing every single night. I dreamt of like beeps and scary <laughs> things and it was just a lot, but I learned so much. That was my first, I'd say six years of nursing and surgical ICU there. And man, it was amazing. But that really got me passionate about doing healthcare a different way doing end of life a different way, the more confident I became as a nurse there. And I also did this thing. I mean, this is kind of getting detailed, but just so you know how I moved around. They're such a big hospital that they had a thing called interest staff where you could be a nurse for their interest staff and then you could move around the hospital. So I worked in medical ICUs, trauma ICUs, surgical ICUs. So I was doing different like ICU places in the hospital. And the more confident I got there, the more I realized, man, we're really missing a link <laughs> to talking about big goals, big life goals about what's going to happen with certain patients. Not every patient's going to die in the ICU, but there were certain patients that were there for months and months and months. And we were really lacking the ability to talk big picture with the family about what was really happening to patients. In general, I don't mean every single person, every single patient, but in general. And then I started speaking up because I was confident enough at the time because now I've been a nurse for, let's say, six years or something. And then I realized my voice really mattered. 
I would say one little thing like during rounds, should we talk about goals of care? What actually has to happen for this person to get out of the ICU? And I realized just that one little thing opened up the door to, well, let's have a family meeting because we all know they're not getting out of the ICU. We know, healthcare workers, we know, but we're not telling anybody. And it started making an impact. So that got me into like, wow, my voice actually matters. This is making an impact. And the impact was the people ended up being taken off machines and dying. But I felt like that was actually better, that they were actually hearing the truth versus this person and the family struggling day after day in this ICU, focusing on small little things like the creatinine going up or down instead of like this big picture of what was really happening to their loved one. Julie, that's a, you don't mind me interrupting. That's a good no, point. Like I noticed as a neonatologist, what is your theory? Because I noticed that many times it is the nurse that will ask, what's our goal of care right? Let's look at the big picture. And from my observation, it's not that the doctor is against that. It's that in many, many instances, we get caught up in the weeds and it doesn't even occur to us yes. until the nurse goes, I think we should have a family meeting. And then the doctor, in most cases, there's difference. was like, wow, that's actually a good idea. Is that your experience? That they yes. just, it just didn't occur to them. Yes, 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 yes. I, I, I don't think anyone has like malicious intent. I feel like all of, I mean, I was guilty of that too for many years. It took me six years to start being like, wait, what are we doing? Why aren't we having conversations with the family, not just with each other? Because we would talk kind of candidly with each other a lot. And neither one of us would think to bring it up. That's the point is once I did, everyone was like, oh yeah. And I think it's just because <laughs> we're all so focused on the little wins, the little wins we have, but those don't always add up to a person getting out of the ICU or going home or being well, right? So yeah, I found that the second I brought it up, it was like, oh yeah, duh. And then we had family meetings and things were changed and things happened. Meaning the family was like, okay, wow, now that I know this, I don't want them to be like this forever. They usually ended up taking people off ventilators and them passing peacefully in the ICU. But so yeah, that made me realize I had a voice and it just got me into end-of-life care. And then I eventually transitioned into hospice. Would you say that there was one defining case that made you say, okay, there's just got to be a better way than this. I got to switch gears. Yeah, there's two people I remember specifically that got me into having those end-of-life conversations. I was taking care of them day in, day out. And I saw them when they first came here, when they first got into the ICU, where they were still possibly well enough to leave. How the ICU works, certain things happen. They have a PE, they have whatever. And then, so I was taking care of them for months. And those two patients, I feel like I had the biggest impact because I was the one to say, we need to have a family meeting about what the end goals are for this person and for their family. And seeing that unfold into a really making changes in their plan of care is what made me go, okay, this is what I want to do. I don't want to be an ICU nurse. <laughs> I want to do whatever this is. I didn't know what that was, but I thought, well, hospice seems kind of like that. So I'm going to try that. So people often confuse palliative care and hospice care. And even though a lot of our audience are healthcare providers, can you shed a little bit of light on what the difference is between the two? Yeah, I think it's difficult to explain. So to me, what I've witnessed is palliative care seems to be different in different facilities, depending on where you're at. But in general, I would describe palliative care as a symptom management program where they help more with, there's definitely something, a big terminal or chronic disease going on. 
and they need help managing the symptoms of the disease or the symptoms of the treatment for the disease. So it's more of a symptom management team where we're helping keep them out of the ER. So we manage their symptoms so they can have a smoother ride and not need to use urgent cares and ERs for their symptoms. That's how I would describe palliative care. And then hospice is, first off, funded by Medicare. So it's very federally regulated. And it's usually less than six months. You're comfort focused only. You want to be at home. You're not going back and forth to the ER. You're not getting treatments. It's very comfort focused versus palliative is the same way, but it's more symptom management focused and you can still get treatment. You can still go in and out of the ER if you wanted to. That's how I describe it. Would you say it was difficult to transition from the ICU setting where you're trying to fix everything and make everything better to just coming to terms discussing with families and patients that hospice care, here we are, we were trying to make you comfortable. Nothing's really going to change or fix anything. Is that a difficult kind of transition to make in your own head? Well, girl, I was ready. (laughs) I was ready. I was like so relieved and happy to see how we were doing it in hospice, which was much more comfort focused and being really aggressive with comfort care, which I love. But it was a shift just because I was an ICU nurse for so long. I was like, what's their potassium? Shouldn't we check this? You know, and they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> chill out, girl. We don't need to do any of that now. I mean, it was hard for my brain to shift. But once I started catching on, it was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And to watch the human body take care of itself without us doing much intervention was amazing. That's the biggest thing I learned and witnessed and why I became so passionate about it was like, wow, we're barely doing anything. And the body is like taking care of itself. Yeah, that's an amazing thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a perfect transition to my next question. So your social media, and we're going to talk in a second about how you got on social media and why that occurred to you. But your topics on your TikToks and your Instagrams, the rally, death with dignity, myths about morphine, like those are all so helpful to people that don't understand. How did these come to you? Is it intentional or does something happen? And you're like, I need to let people know about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I've been a hospice nurse for five years. So I've had five years of experience with in real life, right? And the things I talk about on TikTok are the things that I run into a lot in real life as a hospice nurse. So that's how that came to me. I just knew there was so much information that most people in the general public did not know. And I thought it was crazy. I thought people need to know. It seems like also in real life that most people don't want to know or don't want to hear me talk about it. So I was kind of like, I wonder how this is going to go as far as the social media thing, because I didn't know if people were going to want to really hear about it. I think your number of followers suggests otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's really validating. It was really surprising, but hey, I love it. I love it. Tell me how that happened. How did you say, you know what? TikTok's going to be my platform. That's where I'm going. Well, I was initially going to do a podcast, but then I realized that's a lot of work and a lot of editing. And I just yes, didn't know what I, yes, right? I just yes, didn't know what I was doing. TikTok was never on my radar, ever. I mean, I'm, I'm 39. I was not on TikTok. I barely heard of it, but I went home to see my nieces and my nieces are 11 and 12 and they were on TikTok and they were doing dances and trying to get me to do it with them. And I was kind of teasing them and making fun of them how silly this was and whatever, right? And I got on TikTok to basically watch their TikToks because they're doing cute dances and they're my nieces. And 
I started watching TikToks and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. There are so many people on there talking about all types of things. This is amazing. I love it. So I just made a few videos and put them out. And I think it took like a couple of days. Within a couple of days, I had like multiple viral videos. So I was like, well, I guess I'm going to do this. It really did feel like there was no hustle. It was like, I just sort of fell into my lap. Julie, I have a question. Because since it's topics, difficult conversations, and you had these TikToks that have these, as Liz said, they're really great pieces on things that people want to hear about. Most of the time when people refer to a hospice nurse, if they've had any interaction with a hospice nurse in their life, you hear the word angel, they're wonderful, they're forget we've had some experience with my grandparents. But there are, in my experience, it's unfortunately, we, I do a lot of death of dying too, there are different views on that. And so walk us through when you, I'm sure this has happened before, you go into a house, you're doing your hospice, you have one son who's really grateful to have you there. And then you have the other reluctant son who just agreed to this because he was being pushed into it and looks at you in that way. Like, I don't want you here because you being here means my mother's going to die. And I'm sure that's common and how you navigate through that. That's got to be difficult. I have gotten to the point now, though, where what's really cool with my job specifically, which I know most people don't have this, is I have like a lot of time. I can really spend like hours in a home because I have nothing else to do that day. Almost. There's a few things, but like in general, I'm like dedicated to this family. So now that I've been doing it for a bunch of years, it is difficult, but I enjoy it because I think you have to be really good. And I don't know, and you guys can tell me because you you do this for a living as well, if this could be taught or not. I think you're saying it can be taught because I feel like I am pretty good at reading the room <laughs> and reading people's personalities because I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything. Mm-hmm. But people lack education about the dying process and about death in general. So what I usually try to do is just meet people where they're at. I'm not trying to be like, Pushy. I think people also think I'm going to try to be like pushy about like doing something. And really it's like, no, no, no. I just want you to understand what's happening and how we can help your mom. And I think knowledge really helps decrease fear. At the end of the day, you don't want your mom to be suffering and neither do we. And if that's what you want, you are in the right place. And I'm glad I'm here because here's how we can help with that. And the idea of like, what do you mean you're not going to feed her? What do you mean we're not going to give her IV hydration when she can't eat? They're saying that because they think they're going to suffer because they're not getting IV hydration. And that's the opposite. (laughs) The opposite Mm -hmm. is actually you're going to feel better not getting IV hydration. And so usually I'm met with resistance until they really hear and learn. And then they're really grateful. Usually, not always. And if it's not like that and they still are really resistant, they don't want to listen or they walk out of the room, you know what? That's okay too. That's okay too. It's very normal. That's another thing too is I normalize what's happening. It's so normal for you to have all types of emotions, negative, anger, sadness, you know, it's okay too. And guess what? We're here day in and day out. So we'll keep coming to help your mom. And as time goes on, if you're wanting to talk or have any questions, we're here for you. It can be difficult and it's not always easy, but I do find that education and time seems to really help. 
It's all about communication. Yeah. So yeah, thank you. I yeah. think that's really important. And that's what Liz and I teach so often is, you know, it's about the why. It's about being a real person. It's about yes. being genuine. It's about not judging people for understanding. I mean, there's people that have all irrational thoughts about that, right? I know people who don't want to take out a life insurance policy because they think it'll jinx them. If they take out a life insurance policy, they're going to die. Healthcare workers do. Healthcare workers will say stuff to me that I'm like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not true. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. yeah. And I think some of that anger and frustration comes really from guilt. We always say when we're doing our trainings that the family members feel guilty for not doing what they think they should be doing. And that sometimes the more loving thing to do is to not do anything. Yes. And that's really very eye-opening for them. It's all about that permission to understand it in a different context. And I think that's something you've done so well. It's funny because that's the phrase that we teach a lot of times. There's certain things that when we're teaching communication to doctors, there's certain phrases that they grab their pen and they write that down. And so we'll say sometimes it is the more loving thing to do is to not do something and not like mom suffer. And Liz will tell you, all of a sudden the pen comes out. Oh, I love that. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> the one thing I say to when I can like weave it in there is because it's so natural for people's brains to start going, we're not doing it. Like at first they'll be agreeing with me while I'm there and then I leave. And then their brain starts going, but why are we doing this? I didn't ask her this, no, no, no. you know, like starts the questions. We need to do this. We need to do this. We're not doing enough. I need to do, 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 do. So I always say when that starts happening, ask yourself, is she clean? Is she safe? Is she comfortable? Mm-hmm. And if those are yeses, we're good. And just be with her. That's just clean, safe, comfortable. That's what she wants. That's what the goal is. And they'll be like, okay. So I think sometimes you just, your brain needs something to chew on. So you can just ask yourself that clean, safe, comfortable. What would you say the question you get the most is? Usually if they have a good grasp that their loved one is dying is when, how long do we have? When's it going to happen? And a lot of times I feel like we can give a range. Usually I always say like, you never really know. And I've definitely learned that the hard way. I was like way more confident on like when this was going to happen in my earlier days. So now I always just preface it with, you never know. And I truly mean that like the body will tell us when it's ready. But in general, the further people are away from death, I suppose it's harder, but the closer someone gets, you start seeing very clear signs. We do try to give a range, but that's probably the main thing. If they're really grasping what's happening, they'll ask, how long do we have? So if you're like us, every time you go somewhere and tell somebody what you do, they're going to fill your head with stories of some experience that has happened to them. Would you say that everywhere Tony and I go, somebody will say, I had this doctor once that said this, and we get stories from the taxi cabs to the people in a line in the restaurant, in the, wherever. Does that happen to you as well? Yes, but I usually get like a, ugh. <laughs> if, I say, if I say I'm a hospice nurse, because I never mention the TikTok stuff unless someone says it to me. But yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm a hospice nurse. And they'll either go, oh, wow. Or like, that must be depressing or that must be hard. Or, oh, you're an angel. Every once in a while, they'll talk about, I mean, if they've had the experience, but it's usually just a reaction, like a yikes. <laughs> What's the most fulfilling thing about your job? Truly, people think my job is hard. Like to me, it is the best nurse. And I tried a bunch of nursing jobs. I wasn't just an ICU nurse. 
I had a whole spiel of like pre-op, post-op, PACU, cath lab stuff, education. Hospice is not a thankless job. You can see the gratefulness in people. So the best part of my job is like, and not that I need that, but it's really helpful. Like it, you see the impact you have with patients and families and they are grateful for the most part. And it's the best. It makes my job totally worthwhile. It doesn't make it depressing at all. Even when you have a very hard conversation about death and them dying, you still leave there feeling like, wow, that really helped them. They are telling me how much that helped. And it doesn't feel sad. It feels like sacred. It's amazing. The title of the lecture and the workshop that we give is Breaking Bad News is called Helping Families When They Need Us the Most. And yeah. I truly believe that. You know, I joke with doctors. I could teach anybody how to put a chest tube in or put an IV in. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to do that. But to do hospice and death and dying well and to help families when they need us the most, that is a skill that I think anybody can learn if they're willing. And of course, some people are better at it than others. But to me, that's the most important part of my job. And I deal with little babies. And so, and boy, that's hard to tell a mother that, you know, the baby's not going to make it. But when you're there, I tell everybody, I got 15 years in a row now, I'm getting Christmas cards from a family this patient died on, baby died on me. Wow. I'm much more proud of that than any chest tumor lumbar puncture I ever did. So, yeah. Or intubation. So it's interesting. Yeah, I can really say I love my job. And like I always say, I would do it for free. I mean, of course, if I had like millions of dollars, I still feel like I would do my job at least a couple of days a week. I love it. And I did not love nursing. I did not love it. I actually like really thought, oh, I made the wrong choice. This is not the career for me. I was thinking about getting out of nursing, right? And really, I just needed to find the right fit. Well, I think as a nurse, you're trying to, you think you're going in to ease someone's suffering. Yes. That's always the case. And here you really are easing people's suffering, both the families and the patients. So I think it's such an amazing job that you have. And if you could tell people one thing about hospice, somebody that's newly diagnosed as being terminally ill or, or whatnot and is being referred to hospice and they're so scared, what would be something that you would tell them or what does that first conversation look like? That first conversation, if they're scared, because there's several things I would say about hospice, but I guess if it's the first conversation and they're scared, it would be that our bodies are built to survive birth for the most part and give birth if we're women and we decide to have a baby. Our bodies do crazy things during the birthing process to have a baby. And what I have found from being a hospice nurse, just time and time again, watching people go through the death and dying process physically is that our bodies take care of ourselves. Like our bodies are built to die. And if you're dying, what I would call a natural death, even though it's from a disease, our body will do things to really take care of us. You know, it'll start sleeping more. It'll start eating less and just listen to your body. And for the things that if you're getting symptoms because of your disease process, we can help you with that. That's why we're here. And we're going to help you with that. So you don't suffer from pain or shortness of breath or whatever your disease is causing. But other than that, listen to your body because it will help you have a peaceful transition, a peaceful end of life. We all have an end of life journey and your body is built to do it. So the more you listen to it, the better it'll be. And it's really normal to be afraid. Love that. And it's okay. It's okay. Like people look at it all the time. Like, what do you say when someone says they're afraid? 
I usually I'm I'm independent. Like I said, I feel like I read the room. So I don't just make a joke because that's not funny. But I think people need to feel validated. Of course you feel afraid. (laughs) This is the unknown. You don't know. And you're going to feel afraid. You're going to feel angry. You're going to feel peaceful. Like it's going to fluctuate and that's okay. And you're way ahead of everybody if you're able to talk about it. The fact that you can talk about it is like, man, okay. I think it's really great to show up for people and be the one person. Hopefully they have more, but at least one person who's not afraid to listen to them say stuff like that. Because most people will, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's like, it's not okay. It's okay. You're not okay. It's okay to say the word dying, to say you're scared and just sit there and like acknowledge that and be okay with them being afraid. Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? Like the one person who's not trying to make them not feel that way. Of course you feel afraid. One of the coolest things that I've ever seen is my uh, father-in-law. He died at 96, I believe he was. And he's so God bless him. He was healthy. God bless him. But he had two wishes. And one was to make sure he took care of my mother-in-law, that he out-survived her because she needed some help. And the second wish was that he didn't have to go to a nursing home. That was the two things that he wished in his life. He had a very difficult life. He lost two babies, he was a depression kid, the whole deal, but always considered himself the luckiest person. And so the hospice nurse was there towards the end and she called the children in and boy, she was right on. Like, she's like, I think he's got three hours left and boom, it was about three hours. But his last word when he was just about dying, he looked up and he said to everybody, he goes, I won. Oh, and then he passed God. away. <laughs> and I'm like, is that a right. great story? Oh my God. Uh, Isn't that a wonderful story? The best thing I've ever heard. And I've always um, respected him because this is a man who had the, really a tough life. He lost his mother when he was young. His father became an alcoholic. He lived in 16 homes in the Bronx when he was growing up. He joined the Navy when he was only 17 just to have a stable life. And gets married, loses two children, has four healthy children. By all purposes, he could have just said, I had a rough life. And he, he said, every day I knew him, he's like, I'm the luckiest guy ever. Is that oh, a great quote? I won. so I mean, good. <laughs> I won. Oh, man. But that's the goal of it all, isn't it? At the end of the day, what a blessed life to be able to say and what an amazing person he must have been to be able to say, I won. And sadly, there's too many people who don't live till 96 and live really young. And that's super sad. And I don't mean to minimize that, but I just think it's a great story on how he looked at that and how wonderful the hospice nurse was. And even as a doctor, I've always been astonished how some of these hospice nurses can pretty much tell you when the person is going to die. They have such experience. It's amazing. Yeah. So, Julie, I sent you this question in advance because we like to kind of give you a heads up. Thank you. Is there a type of conversation or even a specific conversation that you find the most difficult? Obviously, the name of our show, Difficult Conversations. So it can be a general topic of conversation. It could be something specific. And how did you navigate it? That's so funny because there's so many difficult conversations on hospice, but they don't feel that difficult. Like I kind of like it, right? I kind of like the challenge. That's a bad way to say it, but I think you know what I mean. The ones that are really hardest on me anyway, like when I go home being like, oh, like that was a rough day is when sometimes there's like nothing to do. (laughs) Like sometimes like I can't ease the suffering. We can do our best, right? So like you said, someone's young, they have a really 
crappy disease they're dying from. Usually when you're dying young, it's usually something not that easy. And there's a lot of symptoms and we're having a hard time managing it. We will get it managed, but it can take a few hours for things to kick in. And like those conversations of like someone being like, what's wrong? I just don't feel good. Like I can't stop throwing up or I'm nauseous. And the family members there being like, how can we help them? And you're doing all these things. Like that conversation is sometimes like, it's just hard. All I can say is like, it's just hard. What do you say, Julie, when that happens? Or it's like, you say, I can't help? Again, it's kind of different for everybody, but I try to be really with them in that moment and just sort of help them understand that like, this is how it goes sometimes. Because the family will be like, why is this happening? Why is she feeling this way? Why are like terminal agitation or something where they're like, okay, they won't stop getting out of bed. They just seem very agitated. And I just try to explain to them, there's not always a specific answer. We don't always have the answer. This is just what happens sometimes at the end of life. And here's when I see it with young people. I see it with this type of disease. And here's what we do for it. And if that doesn't work, we'll do this. In those moments, I think they need a little bit of a timeline, a little bit of like, we just need something to grasp onto because we are losing it. (laughs) And so I do, I try to give them like, this is the solution. If that doesn't work, we'll do this. And then in general, just sort of sitting there with them in the grief of this is really hard. Because I think there, it's not always hard. It is sort of like I won a bunch of I won moments. But there are times, and it's usually when they're younger, and with specific diseases that it's just hard. And I try to sit there and not always have a solution sometimes. I do sit there for a bit and just say, sometimes it's just hard. You're not losing your mind. This is just hard. I would say when it's a child, they say that's the worst loss you can imagine, especially when it's someone's child is passing. I actually don't do children. I've never experienced that. The pain I can't even imagine. Yeah. I would have to do your guys' classes because <laughs> I wouldn't, that is something I feel like I don't, I don't know. I, and I'm not a mother either. Right. So it's like, I really don't know. So is that purposeful? Do you just, do you specifically choose not to do pediatric or is that a? Um, I think I would, I guess if our company did it, but I would really feel like I need help. I would need, I probably would just treat it like I do anything else, but I, I'm sure I feel like I would be ill-equipped for that. It'd be a learning curve for sure. I'd want some help from someone. So what's the process? How does somebody access you? Should they need you? Should they want to know more? How does somebody find you? Well, I'm on all social media platforms at Hospice Nurse Julie across the board. I'm mainly on TikTok. TikTok and Instagram are my main like sources, I guess. But yeah, Hospice Nurse Julie on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Thank you so much, Julie, for joining us. If you don't follow Hospice Nurse Julie, I recommend that you do it right away. I have learned so much. Unfortunately, I've had some tragic deaths in my family and I knew about the rally. And when you talk about it in your post, I actually have a friend who didn't know anything about it because most people don't. And by when I say the rally, Julie, you probably explain it better. But as far as I understand is shortly before someone passes away, they have this miraculous or what seems like a miraculous momentary recovery where they can communicate. They might sit up, they might talk, they might get up. And in the case of my friend that I had mentioned it to, that mom, young mom was dying with young children and she was able to write all of her children letters 
before she passed away. And my girlfriend had said to me, I'm so glad that you told me about that because I would have never known. And what a gift that was for her to be able to leave that for her children. So I feel like, Julie, that's what you're doing about all of these things is you're giving this very compassionate insider's view into the things that people are afraid to talk about. And I've learned a lot. And I'm so glad that we met you and so glad that you came on the show. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Julie. It's been an honor getting to know you. And I'm sure we'll keep in touch and it'll be great. Thanks for all you guys are doing. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and hit follow on your favorite platform. We're on every platform imaginable. You need to get in touch with Liz or I. Just get in touch with us at theorcinyway.com. And we will put all of Julie's connections on the show notes. And please go ahead and tell your friends. This is an important topic. So don't hesitate to contact Julie. Liz, awesome job. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com. The comments and opinions of the interviewer and guests on this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and beliefs of their present and past employers or institutions.